0: Last week in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at the most well-known statement that Jesus ever made, namely the golden rule, treat others the way you want them to treat you. Then this week, today, our study brings us to what is perhaps the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied statement that Jesus ever made. Namely, the words found in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, and do not judge and you will not be judged. Or, as it's better known from Matthew's gospel, do not judge lest you be judged. Concerning the familiarity of this verse and its extreme misuse, theologian R.C. Sproul said this, he said, this verse is probably the only verse that every pagan in America knows is in the Bible. (laughs) They may not know what John 3.16 says, even if they see the reference in bold letters at sporting events, but they know this one because any time the church makes a comment about any practice that the church deems to be a sinful practice, the pagan is quick to quote the scriptures by saying, oh, don't you judge, you're not supposed to judge us. Now the reason, folks, this verse is so misused amongst non-Christians, and sad to say even among some Christians, is because in their attempt to avoid all responsibility for their sinful behavior, they attempt to divert any attention someone puts on their wrong conduct by claiming that this is judging and they're quick to remind us, Jesus said, do not judge. But those who do this are wrong, they're absolutely wrong. They are wrong because they have completely misunderstood what Jesus meant when he spoke about judging and forbidding judging. They have misunderstood him because they have lifted his words out of its context, out of its setting. See, once you see the Lord's words in context, in its proper setting, not only the immediate context in which he gave these words, but also the overall context and teaching of the New Testament, you'll easily see what the Lord was talking about. So I remind you that the context out of which Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged, is his sermon on the Mount. And the overall theme, the overall message, the primary point of this sermon is that those who follow Christ must be different. They must be different than others. Citizens of his kingdom must have a genuine godliness, a true righteousness that demonstrates itself in how we conduct our lives. This is the way Jesus put it. I mentioned this weeks ago, but we go back to this as the foundational statement to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom Of heaven, in contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees of his day, men who were self righteous legalists, men who only cared about appearing to be righteous but not actually being righteous, they just wanted to look righteous, men who had no real concern for pleasing God, in contrast to them, those men, Christ's disciples, our Lord is saying, must be different. They must evidence. A true righteousness that stems from a heart in submission to God that issues forth in obedience to him out of a desire to please and honor him. And so, having stated this broad, general truth about righteousness, Jesus proceeded then to speak about some of the specifics of how righteousness actually conducts itself, how it behaves. And one of the things he spoke about was that his disciples are to love Their enemies. And that's what we've been studying for the last few Sundays. How and why we are to love our enemies. We are to love those who despise us. And what we discovered last week is that the sole reason we are to love those who hate us is that this reflects God's love because He loves those who hate Him and are His enemies. And the way He demonstrates His love to them is by showing them mercy meaning acts of kindness, acts of compassion. Jesus said this in Luke 6.35, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records Jesus being even more specific about how God loves his enemies. By saying this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so as we noted last Sunday, the thought here isn't that we become children of God by loving our enemies but rather that we prove to be children of God by loving our enemies. We evidence this. We demonstrate this. We reveal that we are indeed God's children by reflecting our Heavenly Father's character in that we treat our enemies the same way He treats His enemies by showing them undeserved kindness, expecting nothing back from them in return. And having made this point, the Lord then went on to make sure that no one could possibly misunderstand the point that he was making. And so he said these words in the very next sentence, verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. You can't miss it. It's as clear as it could possibly be. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And so now, picking up where we left off last Sunday, we read that Jesus said these words. Starting with verse 37. Do not judge, and you'll not be judged. And do not condemn, and you'll not be condemned. Pardon, and you'll be pardoned. Give, and it'll be given to you. They'll pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, how these words are related, are tied in, are connected to what Jesus has just said, is this. Having just told us to be merciful to our enemies as God is merciful to his enemies, Jesus now tells us how to be merciful to them. And he does this by giving us four commands, two negative and two positive. He commands us not to judge others. And not to condemn others. That's the negative. And then he commands us to forgive others. And to be generous to others. That's the positive. In other words in each of these commands. Both negative and positive. Are ways that Jesus tells us. How to show mercy. To those who hate us. And they're very specific. They're very pointed. And they are very important. Because as someone has said. A merciful father has merciful children. So. So. If you profess to know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, and therefore you claim that God is your Father, then you'll take these commands to heart and you will seek to obey them. Now, it's not to say that putting these commands into practice are easy or that you won't struggle with them. In fact, I can assure you, you will struggle with them many times. Because those who are our enemies, they've hurt us deeply. And they've wounded us. And we all tend to battle with bitterness and holding grudges against people like this. But if you're a true child of God and you really care about obeying the Lord, then you'll work through your sinful attitudes as you continue. Over and over again to repent of bitterness, repent of holding grudges, and you will seek the Lord to help you to overcome your fleshly struggles until you are doing just what Jesus said to do, showing mercy to your enemies the way you're supposed to. So, with this as our background, we're now ready to discover the four ways that Jesus said we should be merciful. Like God the Father is merciful. We'll look at two these this week and then two next week. And the first way that Jesus said that we are to demonstrate mercy to our enemy is by, number one, by not judging them. Verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Now, as I said earlier, this without question is the most misunderstood, misapplied, misinterpreted statement that Jesus ever made. And it's misunderstood along two lines. Two lines of thinking. The first line of misunderstanding is the belief that in prohibiting judging others, Jesus was forbidding the institution of human courts of law. This was the view of the well-known Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy, who believed that Christ's teaching about not judging others meant that there should be no courts of law, no human judges, no lawyers, no juries, Tolstoy said these words, he said, Christ totally forbids the human institution of any law court and he could mean nothing else by these words. But Tolstoy and those who have joined him in this view, they're wrong. Jesus certainly did mean something else by these words, because both the Old and the New Testaments, both of them teach the necessity of human courts of law. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 19, Romans chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 6. They all speak about human courts of of law. Christ could not possibly have taught anything contrary to what has been taught elsewhere in Scripture. And besides that, the context of our Lord's words about judging others has absolutely nothing to do with professional. Judges in courts of law, but rather to individuals who judge other individuals. Now, quite frankly, most of us would not take Tolstoy's view about judging seriously because we could easily see through the flaw in his argument. We can easily dismiss it because we'd say, well, that's ridiculous. That's obviously not what Jesus is talking about. But there is a second view that Christ's command... Not to judge has been misunderstood, and it is this erroneous view that has been embraced by many. It's a popular view. It's been embraced also by a number of Christians who hold to this. See, the second way that our Lord's words about judging have been interpreted is that Jesus was teaching that we are never to criticize someone else. We are never to make a judgment as to whether another person's actions are right or wrong. We are never to express a strong opinion against the conduct of someone. We are never to condemn the behavior or teaching of another person, church, or organization. We are never to point out anyone's sin, and we are certainly never to say to anyone, you're wrong. In other words, this view believes that to follow Christ's teaching about not Judging others means that you should always be tolerant of everyone else regardless of what they believe or what they teach or how they behave. And the popularity of this view is seen in how often you'll hear someone who's just been confronted about their sin telling telling the one who's confronted them, just stop it, stop judging me. Or they might even invoke our Lord's words against their confronter, judge not lest you be judged. But to interpret Christ's words this way, it is a complete misunderstanding, it is a corruption of what Jesus meant about judging. Here's how Bible teacher and author Kent Hughes explains this misunderstood view. He writes, these first three words, do not judge, have been taken to mean that good Christians must never exercise any critical judgment. Some believe model Christians are totally accepting whatever the situation. Christ likeness is equated with a suspension of critical faculties, a pious, all accepting blindness. Ironically, the world loves opinionated people. Its darlings are those who are articulate and dogmatic about their positions on politics, art, music, literature, culture, you name it. However, when it comes to matters of individual morality, the world abhors opinionated people, especially if they represent conventional morality. In these matters, it adores the non-judgmental person. The ideal Christian, and especially the ideal clergyman, is an undiscerning, flabby, indulgent, all-accepting jellyfish who lives out the misinterpretation of judge-not. I don't know what a human jellyfish looks like, but it just can't be good. I know that. can't be good. Now, folks, that's the way that most non-Christians, and even some Christians like to interpret Christ's words about judging. They believed that when Jesus said judge not, he meant that we must never make a moral judgment on someone's faults and that we must pretend then that we don't notice someone's sin. Just pretend. It's not there. And that we refuse to discern between right and wrong, truth and error. But although they would like this to be the meaning of Christ's words, because it gives them room to live any way that they want to live without being condemned and criticized. This is definitely not what Jesus meant about not judging others. And the primary, the primary reason we know that this is wrong is because the entire Sermon on the Mount, out of which these words came, especially in Matthew's version of it, it's a series of judgments on the errors of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus continuously in his sermon points out their wrong attitudes, their wrong teachings, their wrong conduct, calls them hypocrites, tells his disciples, don't be like them. He's making judgments about them. Now, someone may say, well, that's Jesus. He's God. And therefore, as God, he has the right to judge others, but we don't. This argument, though, it's seriously flawed It's flawed because Jesus not only judged others in the Sermon on the Mount, but he actually commanded us in this very sermon to judge others. I want you to notice something important that we see in Matthew's account, which is an expanded version of Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. That's where we read his words, not to judge others. But then... Immediately, almost immediately after this, just a few verses later, in verse 6, Jesus then tells his followers to make judgments, form opinions about certain people. From Matthew 7, 1, just a few verses later, we go to Matthew 7, 6, where we read, "...do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under your feet, and turn and tear you to pieces." Now, in order to obey this command, we have to judge in the sense, we have to make judgment calls as to who are dogs and who are pigs. Since the Lord is clearly not talking about literal dogs and swine, he's talking about people who act like dogs, who act like swine. Also, notice a few verses later in the same sermon, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 15 through 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then... You'll know them by their fruits. Now, in order to obey this command, which is a command to beware of false teachers, we need to determine who those false teachers are. And that involves making critical evaluations, judgments about people, both their conduct and their teaching. But listen, it's not only the content of the Sermon on the Mount that tells us that we have to judge others. The entire New Testament is filled with exhortations to judge others, to form opinions about them, and if necessary, to confront them on the issues of right and wrong behavior and doctrine. For example, notice what our Lord said in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins, and he's talking about now practicing sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now here Jesus commands us to confront a sinning brother. A brother who has done a sin... And has not repented of that sin. We are to call him or to call her to repentance, to forsake the sin. And if he doesn't repent, then we are to confront this sinning, professing believer again with two or three other people. And if he still doesn't repent, the entire congregation is to be told about it so that the members of the church can call this individual to repentance. And if that doesn't bring about change, if the person still doesn't repent, then Jesus said he's to be put out of the church, excommunicated, and treated as if he is an unbeliever because he is acting like an unbeliever. Now, folks, this entire process of church discipline requires that we have to judge people. We have to make evaluations. We have to confront people. You have to do that. And this isn't an isolated passage of Scripture so that, well, there's nothing else like this anywhere in the New Testament. No, it's not the case. Throughout the New Testament letters, we are told numerous times that we are to evaluate others, form opinions about them, make assessments of right and wrong, and we are to draw some judgmental conclusions. For example, the Apostle John, commonly known as the Apostle of Love, said these words in 2 John, verses 10 And 11, he said, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching he's talking about is teaching about Christ. Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now, what John is saying, understand this, this is in the context of houses back then being used as church buildings. They didn't have buildings like this so they had house churches. In that context, John is saying that we are to judge Every time someone gets up and teaches us about Christ in order to determine if their message is sound, if it's true, if it's biblical, we're to do that. We are to make value judgments. And then in Galatians 1.18, the Apostle Paul said in the strongest of words, he commands us to evaluate, to discern, to judge the message of others. He said, but even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So it's very evident from both the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Scripture, especially the New Testament, that in commanding us not to judge others, Jesus is certainly not forbidding us from making valid judgments and conclusions about the behavior and the doctrine of others. So, now that we know what the Lord did not mean, by judging others, the question then becomes what did he mean by the statement do not judge. Listen carefully. The judgment that Jesus is talking about has nothing to do with making value judgments about other people's behavior and their teaching. As we said, we are called to do that. But the kind of judging that Jesus forbids us from doing is that hypercritical negative attitude that delights in looking for faults in others in order to harshly condemn them. Far from being constructive criticism, which is intended only to help people, this type of judging is just the opposite. It's destructive because it criticizes others just for the sake of criticizing others. In fact, someone who judges like this gets a malicious and a wicked satisfaction from pointing out the sins of others because it makes the person doing the judging feel superior to those who he's criticizing and putting down. In the words of one Bible teacher, this is the kind of person who in looking for the faults of others, and I quote, puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. Now folks, To really grasp what Jesus is saying requires us to remember that he is still talking about showing mercy and kindness to someone who hates you. And pointing out and delighting in somebody's faults, even in enemies. It isn't the way to show kindness. It isn't the way to show compassion. It's the way to exalt yourself. Because it makes you feel morally better than the person that you're judging. You see, to show compassion to an enemy means that even when you point out their sin, you must never elevate yourself above them. Regardless of how evil their behavior is, it means that in addressing the sin of someone who hates you, you never think of yourself as better than that person because apart from the grace of God in Christ, you would behave exactly like your enemy has behaved, maybe even worse. Therefore, driven by compassion... You must never be harsh, never nasty, even when talking to an enemy about their sin. Now, keeping in mind the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, as I reminded you, a call to demonstrate true righteousness, what Jesus is telling us then is that we are never to judge and criticize others like, note this, the self-righteous hypocritical Pharisees did. We're not to treat people the way the Pharisees treated people. Because the Pharisees were the epitome of self-righteousness. Hypercritical, hypocritical judges. Who enjoyed, they absolutely enjoyed finding fault in others. Looking down upon everybody who was different from them. Who acted differently, who thought differently. Jesus illustrates this very self-righteous, judgmental spirit of a Pharisee in a parable that he gave in Luke chapter 18. We've looked at this a number of times, but but watch the the judgmental spirit of this Pharisee, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted." Now you can see by our Lord's portrayal of this typical Pharisee, very typical of that day, that this man exhibited self-righteousness not merely by pointing out the sins of others, including the despised tax collector, a man he despised, but by exalting himself as a righteous individual by pointing out with delight his moral superiority over all these other people. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. You just imagine him dismissing the man with a wave of his hand, like, like this guy over here. See, this was characteristic of the Pharisees. They looked down upon anybody who wasn't just like they were, who didn't agree with them in all their points, and they were quick to condemn and quick to criticize them as horrible sinners. This is the type of judging that Jesus forbids us to do. Judging like a Pharisee. Now, while the Pharisees as an official religious group no longer exist, they passed from the scene many, many years ago, this overly critical, fault-finding, self-righteous spirit of the Pharisees continues to live today, and it lives in many Christians. In fact, looking for and exposing The sins of others, especially their fellow Christians, seems to be a favorite pastime of many believers. You see, there are some believers who see their calling in life as pointing out everybody else's sins. Maybe you've met people like that. They feel like they're self-appointed policemen to tell you what you're doing is wrong. But interestingly enough, they never seem to see their own sins. And often what they're pointing out are not actually sins at all. But they don't see their own sins, especially their sins of pride, of arrogance, of self-righteousness. That just doesn't even exist in their thinking. They're quick to find, to expose, harshly condemn what they perceive to be the sins of others. But they are blind to their own sins, blind to their own faults. So, how can you tell if you are guilty of this type of pharisaical condemning and judging? Well, here are a few glaring ways that this sin shows up, that it evidences itself. You're guilty of the sin of judging others if you enjoy discovering sin in the life of someone, even the sin of a brother or sister in Christ. Instead of their sin grieving your heart, as it should, because you love them, you want what's best for them, deep in your heart you find that you're actually glad that they're in sin because it makes you feel good about yourself because you certainly don't do what they're doing. Listen to what Paul told the Corinthians about how wrong this attitude is. Referring to how we are to love others, Paul said these words in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 6 and 7. He said, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. In other words, what Paul is saying is that love hopes for the best in others. It believes the best in about others and it rejoices when others are walking in the truth not error but the spirit of a judgmental Pharisee hopes for the worst in others it it derives wicked pleasure in finding the sins and and weaknesses of others why because it makes the Pharisee in us feel better about ourselves because we have convinced ourselves we are not like them Another way this sin of judging others shows itself is when we judge the motives, the inner intentions of someone's heart, including our fellow believers. Listen, no one is capable of seeing why people do what they do except God. We can only see outward actions. We cannot look at anybody's heart and go, oh, I know why they're doing that. You don't, it's impossible. You can't know someone's inner motivations. You can't know someone's intentions. You can't know the reasons they're doing what they're doing. Yet in spite of not knowing, there are some Christians who are very quick to jump to conclusions and judge the motives of others, and they always seem to attribute the worst-case motives to them. They claim to know for certain why their actions were were done. Oh, he's doing that because of self-glory. He's doing that out of vengeance. He's doing that to get back at me. He's doing that just in order to get attention. I know why they're doing that. No, you don't know why they're doing that. You don't. Because whenever you assume and accuse others of wrong motives, you have assumed, you have taken the place of God. Because only the omniscient God is capable of reading our hearts and knowing our motives. Notice what Paul told the Corinthians about them judging him and how only God knows the motives of his own heart. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5. through 5, He said, But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Only God reads the hearts. Only God knows what's going on in your heart and why you do what you do and why others do what they do. So Jesus has told us very clearly that we are to show compassion and mercy to others. Regardless of how badly they've treated you. And you do this by by not judging them. Not judging them with a critical. Fault finding. Self-righteous spirit of contempt. A spirit that just takes delight. In their sins. Listen. This kind of judging. It is an ugly sin. And yet it's a very common one. Amongst Christians. Because due to our fleshly nature. We all tend to be hypercritical, condemning of others, especially those who have deeply hurt us. But the Lord commands us, not suggests, he commands us not to do this. And if we completely disregard his command, if we don't care about what he has to say, and we continue to self-righteously judge others, then Jesus proceeds to tell us what we can expect from him. Again, Verse 37. As we continue reading, Jesus said this. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Now, Jesus says that if we don't judge others, then we won't be judged, which is simply, folks, another way of saying that if you do judge others, then you will be judged. So what does the Lord mean by this? Well, there are some who would interpret Jesus as saying that if you don't want to be judged by others, then don't do any judging yourself. In other words, the less critical you are of others, the less critical others will be of you. Now, there certainly is some truth to that thought, because those who speak unkindly to others are only inviting others to speak unkindly to them. So there's truth to this. But that's not what the Lord is talking about here. And the reason that we know this is because he's talking about showing mercy and compassion to an enemy to someone who absolutely despises you someone who hates you someone who disdains you and those who hate you regardless of how you treat them regardless of how kind you are to them regardless of you withholding any kind of critical judgment of them they're going to tend to continue to be critical of you to be negative of you Regardless of how you treat them, they're still going to hate you and that involves being critical of you. Besides this, as you'll recall, Jesus has just finished teaching that we are to love our enemies by doing kind things for them. Knowing that they're not going to reciprocate by doing kind things back to us. So, for Jesus to now say... That if you show mercy to an enemy by not judging that enemy then you can expect your enemy to reciprocate by showing mercy to you by not judging you. That would be contradicting himself. He just said the opposite of that. Listen closely. What Jesus is saying is that if we purposely and intentionally disregard his command by continuing to harshly criticize others delighting in finding fault with them, and judging their inner motives, if after hearing him clearly say don't do that, and then we just disregard it, then we are obviously not children of God. And therefore there is coming a day, Jesus said, when he will judge you along with all unbelievers. You see, while scripture teaches that no true believer will ever be judged by God for the penalty of their sins because Christ's death exhausted the wrath of God towards them so that the Apostle Paul could write in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean that everyone who claims to be a Christian is a true Christian and therefore will escape God's judgment. Listen, there are many people, especially in our country, who profess faith in Christ but there's no evidence in their life that they have truly come to know him. For example, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of people just like this. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He says, I never had a relationship with you. I never had a spiritual intimacy and fellowship with you. Depart from me. Now notice, notice these people. These people claim to know Christ. They even called him Lord. And they tried to convince the Lord that they were his followers by telling him that they were active in doing spectacular miracles. But Jesus wasn't buying any of this. And the reason he wasn't buying it, the reason he didn't accept them as being true believers is that the proof of being one of his disciples is a life characterized by obedience to him. And these people were characterized by disobedience. Disobedience. This is why Jesus said that the only ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do the will of of the father. He also told these pseudo believers that in spite of their miraculous works, they were workers of lawlessness. Meaning what? Meaning that their lifestyle was one of habitual disobedience to God's word. Disobedience was their way of life. It was the general overall direction of their life. They didn't care about obeying God. It didn't bother them that they were disobedient. They weren't interested in obeying God. Their daily existence was characterized by practicing sin without any desire to repent. They were very satisfied in their disobedient life. That's important that we understand that the Lord wasn't telling these people that the way to enter His kingdom was by doing works of obedience. He wasn't saying that. No one can obey God enough to earn their way to heaven because we are all terrible sinners and lawbreakers this is why the scripture says in ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not as a result of work so that no one may boast for we meaning we believers we who have received the gift of eternal life we who have placed our trust in christ we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul says that salvation is a gift from God, which he freely gives to those who place their trust in Christ for salvation. To those who see that their good works will never earn them a place in heaven. However, however, those who have trusted Christ for salvation... We now, Paul says, we now walk in good works. And those good works are the works of obedience. And the obedience he's talking about, you read something in the Word, you obey the Word of God. We walk in works of obedience, but not as a means to earn salvation, but as a way to express our love to the Lord. That's the difference. See, the person who is a true believer a genuine follower of Christ, someone who's been converted, someone who has been regenerated, someone who has been transformed by his power will evidence this by obeying him out of love and a desire to please him. Listen to what we read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6. through 6. I'm going to read this. I'm going to explain it because some of you will unnecessarily feel uncomfortable hearing this. Some of you need to perhaps feel uncomfortable. John said by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments the one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has truly been perfected by this we know that we're in him the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked the manner that he walked is referring to how Christ walked and that is obedience now understand this the lord certainly isn't saying that all believers perfectly keep the commandments because that's just not true no one perfectly keeps god's word even the great apostle paul said he was the chief of sinners the word that john uses for keep it's not a word of absolute perfection the thought behind the word is a desire you're watching. You're always on the alert to try to obey. That's what he's talking about. What John is saying is that true believers desire to keep the word of God even when they don't. Even when they blow it. They repent. They get back up. The longing of their heart is to obey. They, in their heart of hearts, obedience is what they want even as they struggle in their sin. That's the mark of a true believer you want to obey even when it's hard and you will obey by the grace of God but after hearing Jesus say don't judge others with a hypercritical self-righteous spirit that enjoys fault finding if you hear that and you just have no intention of even striving to obey him it just means nothing to you then I have to tell you you are not a child of God and therefore just as Jesus said you will be judged, meaning you'll be judged with all unbelievers at the final judgment because you are an unbeliever. As Ken Hughes puts it, he said, Are you judgmental and condemning? Does this describe your favorite indoor sport? Take heed, because then you are certainly not a disciple. A merciful father has merciful children. If you don't reflect God's mercy at all, and you don't care about reflecting it, you can't possibly be one of his children. Now, the time remaining, I want us to look briefly at the second way that Jesus commands us to show mercy to our enemies, which is by not condemning them. Verse 37 goes on to say, and do not condemn, and you'll not be condemned. Now, once again, these words are presented in their negative form, just as judging was. And like the command to not judge, the opposite is true. If you condemn someone, you will be condemned. Condemn. So the question is, what's the difference then between judging others and condemning others? Well, I have to tell you, they're very similar. They're very similar. So we really don't need to spend much time on this. However, the one major difference between judging someone and condemning someone is that condemning takes judging to a whole new level in the sense that to condemn someone means that having found fault with them, you now pass sentence On them because you have concluded that there is no hope for them, they are just doomed. So, to condemn an enemy entails setting yourself up in a role reserved only for God Almighty as the one who decides who is to be executed. Instead of compassionately praying for your enemy to be saved, you have condemned that person as being hopelessly lost. And therefore, beyond saving, beyond the grace of God, they are doomed. And if this is your attitude towards others, if you are that heartless to callously condemn your enemy to a Christless eternity, without even praying for that person, without even caring about their soul, without showing any mercy, then you don't have any mercy. You don't. And if you have no mercy, then you are not a child of God. And therefore, you will be, as Jesus says, you'll be condemned yourself. See, anyone who has no concern for lost people to have faith in Christ, even those who have hurt you deeply, if you don't have any concern for their soul, no matter what they've done to you, then you don't have God's love and God's mercy dwelling in you. Even Jesus spoke of forgiveness of those who had put him on the cross Even at that point in his life, when he was hurting so, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when Stephen was being stoned to death, that's what he prayed, for God to forgive them. So if you have no concern for the lostness of an enemy, for their soul, and you actually enjoy the thought that your enemy is bound for hell, then you are in need of God's mercy to save you. Now, folks, the purpose of our Lord's words about not judging and not condemning others, is to guide us in the way that we are to show mercy to those who have hurt us and those who despise us. Instead of being fault finders and those who enjoy condemning others, we are to be kind to our enemies. And that involves having the proper attitude towards them. So don't look down upon them. Don't consider yourself superior to them. Don't be harsh and self-righteous in criticizing them. And don't give up on them by concluding that they are so bad, they are so horrible, they can't possibly be saved and I'm glad they're going to go to hell. Don't ever do that. If God by His grace, God by His mercy saved you when you were His enemy, then He can save someone who is your enemy, anyone He chooses to save. And if you've never been saved yourself, Then now is your opportunity. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put this off. Just consider your life. If you have no peace in your heart, no joy, no real fulfillment, an emptiness that you just cannot fill no matter what you do, then know this. Know it's because of your sin. It's your sin. It separated you from God and therefore separated you from from real living. You'll never find peace, you'll never find joy. You'll never find lasting satisfaction and fulfillment until you turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus Christ to save you alone by his grace. So if God has convicted you today, you want to speak to one of our pastors about this, we can help you here at Lakeside. We can point you and and explain to you the way of salvation in Christ. And if that's the desire of your heart, just see me as we close the service. I'll be up here. Some of our elders will be with me and they'll be happy to talk to you. Father, we thank you for these words. They are strong words, Lord. It's hard to teach them, hard to receive them, but this is what you said. And we pray that we'll receive them. We pray that we'll be honest with ourselves. Lord, forgive us when we are fault finders, when we enjoy this, when we go after people and we delight In criticizing them, Lord, help us to not be like that. For those who struggle with this, we pray for your grace and help, and we pray that they'll admit this, that they'll be honest with themselves so they can repent. And Lord, even for those who have hurt us deeply, we do pray for their salvation. We pray that you, by your mercy and grace, will save them. So, Lord, we pray also for any here, any watching, who may still need salvation may still not know you. We ask you to draw them to yourself, convict them of their sin, bring them to Christ for salvation. This we pray in his name. Amen.